everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have law professor Jody Amor from USC. And he has a great book that I read a few weeks ago and I highly recommend. Welcome to the show, Jody. Great to be with you, David. Good. Uh, so I want to spend uh, most of our time kind of discussing some of the finer points of your book, but I wanted to start uh, with uh, the obvious question. Uh, why the title of your book and what does it mean? Yeah, why do I put the N word in the middle of the uh, book right from the start? Its uh, title is N, asterisk, D-D-A, theory, uh, colon, race language, unequal justice, and the law. And the language part, David, is part of the story of the N-word being in the title. Um, my dad was able to appeal his way out of prison using just language. That's all he had. Um, and I, I came to appreciate the power of word work through his example. And so I want us to, I want this it to be kind of a constant provocation to reflect on the nature of language, the malleability of meaning, how meanings themselves can be up for grabs and part of a pitched battle between social groups trying to define themselves um, as social actors through the meanings that they're able to um, secure and, and, and rally around and unify around. And so that's part of it. Another part of it is rooted in a famous um, routine by, or infamous, Chris Rock in 1996, launched his comedic career by walking back in front on the stage uh, uh, in front of an all-black audience with following routine. Um, it's like a civil, and, I, and I'll avoid using the actual word and except as necessary, uh, David, but sometimes I think there is a, a fierceness to it and an immediacy that um, has to be heard. So that's kind of the trigger warning part. But his famous routine was, it's like a civil war going on in black America and there's two sides. There's black people and there's niggas. And niggas have got to go. I love black people. But I hate niggas. Boy, I wish they let me join the Ku Klux Klan. See, I'd go drive by from here to Brooklyn. And he goes on like that for 30, 40 minutes. And his core definition of a so-called nigger is a black, a morally condemnable black criminal. So by that definition, um, the up to in some of these inner city neighborhoods, 
sadly, 90% of young black males are going to wind up in jail on probation on parole at some point in their, in their lives. He is comfortable with consigning them to niggardom, you know, in the audience as well. And he's clearly using the word in a vituperative, pejorative sense, and right, to morally condemn the people on the receiving end of it. And so I'm attacking that distinction, David. I'm attacking that moral distinction between the worthy and the wicked, the morally upstanding and the morally condemnable. And I think that unless we attack it at its root and overhaul our current moral framework, political framework, and um, for that matter, um, even legal framework, then we're never going to really make deep cuts in racialized mass incarceration. So let me get to mass incarceration in a second, because I think that's mainly what I want to talk about. But is this a word that we should bury, or is this a word that still has use? It still has a great deal of use, which is another reason I use it, David. Thank you. Uh, you know, there, there are really uh, uh, a lot, but some of the primary ones are ones that you're touching on now. The fact that the word doesn't just have a pejorative negative meaning. It doesn't just have the meaning that Chris Rock gave it and that it has historically had when black people were slaves and the word was used to dehumanize them, otherize them in the, in the strongest possible linguistic way. That's certainly been the history of the word. And as a result of that history, some mistakenly believe that any current day applications of the word must be seen as fruit of the poisonous tree, linguistic tree, etymological tree that has deep roots that run into that racist path. And so you have inward abolitionists out there, et cetera, who object to some of the work that I do. But I've seen the N-word also wielded by black artists, by black writers, by black, even comedians like Dave Chappelle, artists I'm thinking about in particular are artists like Tupac Shakur, Nas, Ice Cube, Jay-Z, who have used the N-word, they, I would call them N-word virtuosos as part of their art. You know, you really have the N-word penetrate rap culture with gangster rap, Ice Cube, out here with NWA and then breaking out on his own with America's Most Wanted. And then, you know, Tupac and Nas and everyone else kind of came in behind with that kind of gangster rap style and approach. But he came in with that approach being profane, but also oppositional, also political. You know, so when you, uh, and, and so he, they would use the word sometimes in a way that was very endearing and positive. Like when Tupac Shakur would say, how many, and his uh, solidarity dirge uh, says, um, life goes on. That's uh, that one. He says, how many brothers fell victim to the street? Rest in peace, young nigga. There's a heaven for a G. I'd be a lie if I told you that I never thought of death. My niggas, we the last ones left. Right? He's using the word there as a term of endearment, as one of solidarity, as an expression of solidarity, a performance, in fact, of solidarity. A way of saying, I know you come from the same five category I do. I know you're the target of this word just like I am, but I am going to reach out to you and embrace you all the more, you know, because it is about us. You know, we all we got, you know, you're mine, you know, and so it has all, it has additional layers of meaning 
that black artists, and notice if I keep saying that, stressing that, that black artists can really truly exploit and have effectively. Now, you know, that always raises the question, well, can white folks do the same? Can white artists? The simple, quick answer is going to be, without going into the, 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 some of the nuances, which there are, no. You know, um, Bill Maher does not need to use the N-word in his punchlines, all right? Um, as much as he would love to, as much as it would give him more viewership to be able to, no. <laughs> and we can go into lots of why, but, but I had to address that because I know that's going to be a question that pops up too. Well, you know, and, and that's that's really an interesting take, um, and it's interesting your your musical uh, uh, style is uh, around the same generation as I am. And mm-hmm. what, what's really interesting, though, is you know I listened to that music when I was in my late teens, early twenties. And now mm-hmm. I listen to it and I cringe when I hear some of this. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so it, it, it seems like, you know, we've almost moved to a point where even that is a little cringeworthy. It depends. There are parts of it that are, you know, there's always been just bad music. And there's lots of cringe, cringeworthy rap, you know, um, uh, like any other genre. Um, the folks I'm focusing in on, though, they... Tupac Shakur still sounds evergreen to me. You know, he still sounds great to me. The, you know, my students, you know, when they put them on, you know, they feel them. You know, I can say the same thing about um, Nas, for that matter. You know, um, I go through some of his stuff. I, there's some stuff I can criticize, but there's other stuff, you know, like uh, here's These Are Our Heroes, speaking of the politics of respectability within the black community that people try to play, you know, good Negroes against bad Negroes that I talk about in the book. But these are the kind of narratives that Nas is dropping. I haven't even thought about this, David, in like 15 years, so I probably won't even be able to get this out. But he was dropping lyrics like this. Uh, these are our heroes. Let's hear a two for the spook who does cartwheels because they said he plays his part well. Now they claim caviar hates that oxtail. Lamb the Sigma Phi badge on the tail. Why do you always tell him, ooh, he speaks so well? Are you the one we look to, the decent Negro, the respectable Negro? Hell no. But they say these are our heroes. I hear a lot of uh, fantastic word work in their social political commentary that hasn't aged, you know, uh, uh, for me, badly. Now, yeah, there's some crap <laughs> out here that does age badly, but I haven't had the same experience. All right. Um, so I mainly want to talk about uh, mass incarceration and a few other themes uh, in, in your work. And uh mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want to start with this one because, you know, um, most people who have studied the issue of the criminal legal system understand, at least at some level, there's a disproportionate impact of race on the system. Uh, but how do you respond to those who say that the reason that there's a disproportionate number of blacks in prison, for example, is because it simply reflects the rate of crime? Yep, that's the standard response, right? It's like, uh, um, you know, a, a, a standard chess game. Roy Lopez, you know, pawn the king for pawn the king. You know what the first uh, objection is going to be to any criticism of the racialized nature of mass incarceration and um, that the fact that black the black community bears the brunt of a lot of bad law enforcement, especially a lot of people will say, well, you know, the, the statistics support 
support the conclusion that black people are engaging in disproportionate amounts of crime. And therefore, it is not irrational to uh, police them differently because of that fact alone. Well, we'll take some of the easy cases out of the picture, right? That is simply false when it came to, for example, marijuana use and arrest before we had um, legalization, right? They've shown again and again, white kids and black kids using marijuana about the same. White people, black people using marijuana about the same. Black people getting cracked down on grossly disproportionately. You look at the statistics and their jaw dropping all the way through the system, getting worse as you get through the system from arrest to prosecution to conviction to sentencing, right? So it's not simply that blacks are doing more of whatever that particular activity was, like smoking a joint. It was that they were being, they were disproportionately the target of law enforcement. You know, you find what you look for. If you spend all your time looking for speeders on one side of town, you know, people going five miles or 10 miles over the speed limit on one side of town, then people going five and 10 miles over the speed limit on the other side of town aren't getting any tickets, aren't getting shown up, aren't showing up in any statistics, right? And, but are doing the exact same activity, at the, <laughs> engaging in the exact same level of misbehavior. You know, which is the minimus anyway. Like I said, we're talking joints, but people didn't used to see, uh, seem to want to see it that way. So, number one, let's take out all those cases, and it's a, there's a mountain of them that just are about law enforcement priorities and the fact that law enforcement zeroes in on black communities more than non-black communities, and that uh, accounts for a lot of the difference. Not any greater involvement in the underlying criminal activity by people in the black community. Now, let's put that set of cases to one side, that huge set of cases, and then look at the other, another set of cases having to do with things like homicide. You know, now homicide, um, violence, certain kinds of violent crimes aren't just creatures, uh, you know, statistical artifacts of law enforcement priorities. You know, you can count toe tags. And you can say, well, no, we, you know, there are many more homicides occurring in, for example, the black community than the non-black community, right? And um, there are more uh, street crimes in general. And that can't be gainsaid. That can't be denied. And it should, in fact, be understood and predicted. If you take a group of people, you disproportionately concentrate them in desperate criminogenic conditions. It should sadden but not surprise you to find them disproportionately turning to desperate undertakings like criminal activities, like street crime, right? So that part, it, it doesn't, it, you know, that doesn't surprise me that there would be that kind of disproportionality. The question is now, what do we do with that, you know, fact, that, that statistical reality? Do we use it to justify racial profiling? Or do we not? Do we say no? Even if there is a statistically rational relationship of some kind between race and crime, we still reject allowing people to behave on those statistical generalizations, those racial statistical generalizations, because there are certain social costs that accompany acting on them that are so enormous, so grievous, that they outweigh whatever benefits come from acting on them.
right? And that's another, I, my first book, Negrophobia and Reasonable Racism, I go into that argument a lot more. So it's really interesting. Uh, you make a point in the book, and one of the, uh, you know, kind of uh, themes that have come out uh, overall in the political system over the last few years has been kind of the failure of uh, fair housing policies. And and you make kind of the opposite point that one of the problems mm -hmm. is that we, we actually enacted fair housing policies, which allowed middle-class blacks to escape from the cities and mm -hmm. left a concentration of poverty in the inner mm -hmm. cities. Uh, can mm -hmm. you talk about that a little? Nice, David. Though that 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 is, um, I, I can tell that you 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 know you're you're a careful reader, and that is absolutely right. Um, I I I have I'm not letting anyone um, escape uh, without accepting their share of responsibility for the plight of truly disadvantaged Black folks who are the ones who are disproportionately turning to crime and therefore winding up being caught up in the criminal justice system. I, it, it, it was a bipartisan affair, number one, you know, um, mass racialized mass incarceration, both Democratic and Republican administrations have supported this kind of tough-on-crime approach that got us the, the so-called New Jim Crow. And a lot of black people have been a part of it, as well as non-black people, getting other black folks locked up. And, and promoting um, um, policies that uh, gave us what we have now, the, you know, racialized mass incarceration. And that is, um, you know, that's certainly one of them. What happened over and over, um, these, uh, some of the studies I cited show, is that black, the black middle class um, at one time was limited thanks to segregation to housing situations that kept them in contact with truly disadvantaged blacks, with working class and, and, and unemployed and other truly disadvantaged blacks. All not, work, not that working class is truly disadvantaged yet, but you know, in, that, in that economic range of, of less economically privileged blacks, we, the, the, the community lived together. And that meant that the, the black middle class many of whom were professionals, lawyers, doctors, and the like, were able to provide some support uh, for that community, um, for its schools and for its civic institutions. They were there to help keep them at a minimal level. And that redounded to the benefit of the, of the black, lower, uh, uh, truly disadvantaged blacks, right? Because the community was healthier and stronger. But when you have Shelly Kramer you know, really give a get teeth and the street said no more enforcement of racial, um, racially restricted covenant, um, no more, right? Um, and blacks trickled in, started out trickling in to some formerly all white neighborhoods. And like my own here in LA, View Park, which was once all white. In fact, the street I was, I'm living on, Kenway, I got to see the original deed. Everyone on Kenway signed a covenant not to sell to whites or Jews in 1956, right? So that was the idea. And that was after Shelley Kramer. They were still putting it in the, in the language of, of the deed just so you feel a moral obligation to look out for, you know, my property interest by not selling to blacks. Because what happened is when blacks did trickle in, you had white flight 
and suddenly these homes were going for a fraction of their normal value, you know, for 50 cent on the dollar, 35 cent on the dollar. And you had the black middle class rush into these neighborhoods as black, as white folks took flight and, and mass and had, you had a mass exodus, right? Um, the black bourgeoisie, black professionals came in in droves and left behind those communities were truly disadvantaged blacks are and working class blacks, right? And left behind all the cultural capital, you know, rather took with them the cultural capital and left behind no none of that cultural capital to, you know, kind of secure that community, took with them all their cultural capital to um, neighborhoods like View Park, to these one, what used to be white neighborhoods, they, turned, they became all black neighborhoods. It wasn't that you got rid of segregation. It's just segregation, the face of it shifted, you know. You, like, View Park was 90-something percent black for the longest since I've been here, um, and, you know. Um, and so what that meant was that the communities left behind were much more vulnerable now, you know, to any kind of well, waves of unemployment, to any kind of social miseries. They would go through them. There wasn't the, the support provided by the Blackwood Rosie. And so when you had something like the crack plague come along, it went through these, these uh, truly disadvantaged black neighborhoods like wildfire, especially, right? Because there was an economic now kind of segregation between truly disadvantaged blacks. And in L.A., that would be um, a lot of times blacks associated with um, places of pe- that, that people heard about, like, I don't know. South Central. I've heard my neighbors say we don't want South Central up here. The Jungle, Compton, Wash. You know, there there are places that the Black bourgeoisie left, like those, to come to places like View Park. And once they got to View Park, they I've I heard my neighbors say we don't want Compton up here. We don't want South Central up here. Up here. So there's been a kind of economically gated mentality that the Black bourgeoisie has adopted that I've seen firsthand and reported on before, you know, that, 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 which is why in this book I talk about the need to talk about race and class together and understand their interaction, their intersection to understand what's really going on. Yeah, which I appreciate because normally what I hear are people saying, oh, we shouldn't be talking about race anymore. Let's talk about class. But I think if you do that, then you end up missing all of these other problems that you've already cited. But if you forget about class, then we have the other set of problems yep. that, that we're not considering. Yep, precisely. That's it. You know, you, you, you have to think about them in tandem. Um, it's not that you can reduce race to class. You have a lot of very privileged class, uh, uh, very privileged blacks. Uh, Ellis Coates had a book out years ago called The Rage of the Privileged Class. And it's about all these black Brahmins, these, you know, people who'd achieved so much, you know, the Oprah Winfrey's of the world, you know, had achieved so much professionally in their lives, and yet they were profiled, they were humiliated, there were all kinds of microaggressions and, and, and dignities that they were swallowing as a result of their racial identity, right? The, 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 the fact that they had, you know, millions of dollars of fancy degrees or whatever did not insulate them from the black tax, right? So you can't, you don't, you can't reduce race to class 
and but you you it, it, it is important to continue to recognize their interaction and how their interplay can give rise to a lot of what we see. So that, you know, sometimes the black bourgeoisie, the black middle class and upper class can start to talk about things, can start to make noises like, we don't want Compton up here. You know, that is, it, it doesn't look, you know, it doesn't look racist. You know, it's hard to say it's racist because it's, it's middle class blacks talking about, you know, other blacks. So is it really, you know, can you really characterize it as, as racist? Well, what you have to characterize it as is a, as, is as hypocrisy. Here, here's why I call it hypocrisy. It's hypocritical for the black bourgeoisie and black Brahmins to raise against racial profiling, right, and the black tax, which they do all the time. We do all the time, right, on the one hand. And then after raising against racial profiling, turn around and practice facial profiling on their own people, on other blacks. You know, say, I don't want Compton up here. I don't want South Central up here. So, you know, indulge in stereotypes about geographical spaces people come from, you know, that, that have class bigotry built into them. You know, Chris Roxy King has class bigotry built into it. When he says, I love black people, but I hate N-words, you know, the, um, and he says that's black criminals. Well, since the middle class white crime rate is roughly the same as the middle class black crime rate, what he was really saying is, I love disproportionately the black bourgeoisie and hate disproportionately truly disadvantaged blacks. You know, because it's from the ranks of truly disadvantaged blacks that most of the crime rate statistics that people are concerned about are coming from. You know, so what you have is a truly a class distinction masquerading as a moral distinction. When people are saying, oh, you know, um, I, I just don't like bad Negroes. I'm, I'm all about good Negroes. That's the way Randall Kennedy, a black law professor at Harvard University, puts it. That he says the black community needs to distinguish and distance itself. Good Negroes need to distinguish and distance themselves from bad Negroes, you know, um, in that way. And so, yeah, I, 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 uh, I have all those problems with it. So I want to move on to uh, Trump. Uh, and, and let me just make this comment and, and just leave it here. I'm really impressed by how versatile your, uh, work was because you're drawing on so many different strands of thought and different, uh, disciplines. It was really impressive and you were able to weave it all together. Um, Thank you. Thank you. so you pull from the ANES, the national election study, uh, from 2016, and uh, you unpack the data, and yeah. the data says that a good percentage of people who voted for Trump did it for racial reasons. Right, right. Hey, and I understand it. You know, and I ain't mad at him in, in one way, David. You know, there's a, there's a sense in which I understand it's a deeply human kind of experience and phenomenon to uh, be attached to one's social identity. There, think about how many people in our nation and in this world are very 
find their social identity very important to them, right? Their social identity and their personal identity often are one in the same or, or, or a hell of a lot of overlap, right? And so um, I understand how traumatic it, be, it must be to have been a member of the dominant social group, so for that to be your social identity. To, to, be, to have the social identity of a person who's been a member of the dominant social group in America since its inception, all the way to the present, you have always been, you know, uh, you, 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 I, I, don't, I don't mean to trivialize this, you know, but, you know, um, sports fan, you identify with sports teams, you know, like people do right now, and you've always just been the dominant team. And now some other teams are saying, well, what about, you know, actually there's some other teams that can, you know, also beat here. You know, you, you as, you, you know, you, you may kind of not like the idea of no longer being viewed as, you know, the dominant team, you know, the, 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 the city of, oh, I'm from, I hear sports fans talk that way, you know, and that's, that's a trivial social identity, isn't it? You know, I'm a, I'm a fan of this, of this team. Well, these, uh, these kinds of social identities we're talking about, you know, having to do with your gender, with your race, with your, you know, all kinds of deeply for your sexual uh, preferences, you know, all kinds of deeply personal social identity things. And one of them may be, you know, your, 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 um, identity as a black person is a social identity. A lot of people take pride in being a black person, right? A lot of pride in it, and and recognize. And part of the pride they take in that is that I'm a member of a group that's overcome adversities, you know. And so I recognize that I'm be, I'm been in a, in a disadvantaged group, but I've overcome that pride in that. Well, I'm just trying to imagine this from the standpoint of a member of the. I've always been the dominant group. I've been able to take it for granted. I get a lot of psychic, psychic satisfaction from that. It is, you know, if you lowball or underestimate the amount of psychic satisfaction that white people get from being members of the dominant social group in America, then there's a lot about American politics you're never going to get. There's a lot about American life you're just never going to get. You know, I get it because I, I tried to understand it. And when, when I try, I can really understand it. I say, yeah, I see that. Now, what I'm hoping, white people, is that, you know, some of the same kinds of things I've had to go through with my privilege, you're going to be able to go through with your privilege and find that you can live without your privilege very, fulfill, very fulfilling lives like I've been able to live without some of my privilege when I've thought about my male privilege. You know, I've thought a lot about my, you know, my male privilege and all the ways it expresses itself from, you know, things like being able to walk across campus in the middle of the night after working late into the night without giving it a second thought, without thinking about sexual assault, you know, constantly without you knowing one thinking I'm going to get blamed for sexual assault happening, just all kinds of areas of life that I don't have, I, I have privilege and don't even have to think about a, a lot of problems. I try to uh, also understand, you know, the, 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 the perspective of you know, how hard it was for me to face my own privilege, right? You know, there are certain benefits that, that came from being a part. There are certain benefits that come from, if you want to embrace them, you can, being a member of the dominant gender. 
right? I get people take more seriously in conversation. I mean, there are a lot of benefits that I could, you know, I could disregard, pretend they're not there, or I can confront and, you know, and say that I'm going to have to give up some of my male privilege. I'm going to have to fight for more women on my faculty, more women in the student body, more women in higher echelons and law firms. That's going to mean fewer of me, fewer, fewer males. You know, I'm going to have to look at that and say, yeah, and, and, but it's, it's worth it. You know, that it is a price worth paying, uh, you know, because even though it doesn't promote my selfish interest in some ways, it does promote my interest in wanting to look at myself as a certain kind of person, to be a certain kind of person. I, I don't want to view myself as, I, some people don't care about being viewed as sexist or racist, but a lot of us, you know, American culture has gotten to the point that people feel uncomfortable, you know, um, viewing themselves as or being viewed by others as sexist or racist. And, in, and if they think that their benefits are coming at the expense of sexism and racism, they, they can make some people squirm. You know, it can, it can generate compunction, I think. And so uh, that's what we see uh, kind of going on. So I hope. I hope that 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 that, that process is undergone, David. That's my, that was that's what my hope is anyway. Well, one of the things I think is um, going on here is that you know, a there there's a good amount of people that are just in denial about things like white supremacy and white privilege. But mm-hmm. the other thing is that even those who kind of acknowledge it. They'll acknowledge it. They'll be against racism. They'll say they're against racism anyway. But a lot of people are not willing to lose in order to yeah. make sure that others get a fair shake. And I think yeah. that is the Trump phenomenon. Yes. Yes. There it is. You know, look, the bottom line is, and it's even worse when it comes to black. If you put a black face on it, it becomes even worse. And I'll, I'll, point, I'll say why in a moment. You saw that a little bit in the book. But um, if you're talking about increasing my marginal tax rate, for the sake of racial justice. I don't want that. That's what's right. That's what a lot of folks are saying. I, it, even if you tell me uh, we're going to have a Marshall Plan for black America, you know, it's going to be like, you know, we did in Europe and it's going to be about reparations and we can do it. Look, we, we were able to pull, you know, a couple trillion dollars out of our ass when we wanted to, you know, um, up in, a lot, in a lot of different ways. Um, we, we could, we can perhaps do something like that that could really get at the root of this, you know, original American sin of racism. Um, but it's going to require an in- significantly increased marginal tax rate. Oh, let's say like it was when America was most prosperous in the 50s and 60s, when, when it was at its peak of prosperity and the rate was up around 90 percent. And it wasn't effectively for many people, but it was still way up way above what it is today that and it made the it made possible more social redistribution right i, I it made possible programs like i got into a better chance to kids, take kids out of the ghettos and put them into boarding school so they have a better chance to go on to college those great society programs but do people want to spend any money out of their pocketbook for racial justice do they want to you know incur that higher tax rate for racial justice that's when you see um, you see that it's, it's not so clear that they are. And then when you put on top of that, that general reluctance 
to that the, the, they the, they would only be saving black people by taking on that burden. Oh, you mean I'm going to have to take on some additional financial burden, and it's going to be for the sake of black people in distress? Well, I don't know if I'm ready to, to make that sacrifice, you know. And you saw, and and I think um, the indifference that that betrays when it comes to black lives, you saw on full display after Hurricane Katrina in the Ninth Ward in New Orleans, when those black people were standing on those rooftops or with water up to their neck, literally, um, not for one day, two days, three days, four days in, water up to their neck, and FEMA can't can't get his act together. Sean Penn is rowing up there in a rowboat handing out fresh water because FEMA still can't get his act together. Compare that response to the response to the victims after 9-11 when those planes ran into those buildings. There was a panic of empathy. We didn't let any blue red tape get in the way, any bureaucratic impediments. We just, you know, we just helped people like they were people we cared about. You know, those lives matter. Those black lives standing on those rooftops in the Ninth Ward don't matter, didn't matter. Right to us enough for us to act in, in the same way. We didn't have the same panic of empathy for them, and so that I think is you know kind of really at the at, at the uh, also going to be a problem when you when you cast in terms of you're going to have to sacrifice some burden for some black lives that are in crisis and distress. History has shown that when the, and I talk about this in my book, I go into the psychological studies and the mirror neurons as a basic building block of empathy and how they are, we are, our brains are wired racially. You know, we, we are wired racially not to feel that same panic of empathy for out-group members that we feel for in-group members, right? But, so it, 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 it doesn't, it, it winds up with a pretty gloomy forecast, uh, you know, kind of, or rather at least um, uh, a diagnosis of, of what the problem is. It's not, it's not going to be it's not going to, it's not an easy problem to solve when it's unconscious and it's unconscious in this sense. You know, it's not, I don't like black people. It's not that I have any KKK variety, anti-black, you know, prejudice. It's just that I don't have the same care and concern for them that I would for, um, you know, somebody I did identify with that was part of my in-group. And I don't even realize, I see myself as racially liberal. I don't even recognize that it's at the level of my mirror neurons not firing. That's why I'm not feeling more exercised about these black people in distress. I just kind of think it's, you know, because their, you know, concerns aren't as important as other concerns, you know. So that's what makes all of this so so tricky, David. So one more issue, and, and, and then we're pretty much out of time. But uh, I do want to raise the issue of the Confederate flag because this is— this bothers me. Uh, you know, uh, I, I like watching football, and uh, anytime you watch the SEC, you get to watch the uh, Confederate flag going across your screen, and you're like, "What year is this?" Uh, yeah. And 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 here's the thing that 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 gets me: after the Holocaust, after World War II, Germany yeah. had to deal with a whole bunch of stuff. And what did they do? Yep. They banned it. And what does the American yep. do? They they leave them up as state flags yep. and, and and monuments. Uh, I mean, yep. is there any wonder why we haven't progressed? 
Well, you know, yeah, David, here is the, the, the chapter in my book, the fourth chapter is really all about this issue of linguistic and non-linguistic symbolic communication and how that, that the meaning of words and symbols is politically determined. It's not that, you know, the N-word doesn't have a predetermined meaning. And even the Confederate flag does not have a predetermined meaning, right? It, that is a, a, a fixed and frozen meaning. I should say it that way to be clear. A, an indelible meaning. A meaning that, can't, that, that you know, can't really be shaken, right? This is what people were saying about the N-word so often. And so uh, I, the, now black writers and artists have not taken up the Confederate flag in the way they've taken up the N-word. You know, the Confederate flag is the non-linguistic equivalent of the N-word, which is the linguistic pejorative, right? Both of them, you can see them for a, a lot of black people. Those, those two um, forms of symbolic communication are on the same footing. Um, but black folk have not taken up the Confederate flag in the way they have the N-word, in the way we have the N-word, right? Um, and who we could have, there's no, right? There's no, that's the point of my whole analysis in that chapter. It's not that any inherent meaning fixes the trajectory that a, 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 a meaning may take, a word may take. It is a political contest for black and other kinds of reasons, but blacks never did it with the Confederate flag. So I agree with you that right now it is very clear that in, in when, when we're thinking about words and symbols in the public American space, you know, in public American spaces, our, our public symbolic life, right? When we're looking at our public symbolic life, um, you can argue about the meaning of the Confederate flag. Some will say it means Southern pride, right? And you, David, you, neither you nor I can conclusively prove that for them, it does not mean that. <laughs> you know, it, it, for them, it may indeed uh, conjure all of that kind of, uh, all those feelings and, and thoughts, right? I can't say it doesn't. What I can say is it also conjures a lot of pain and suffering for a lot of other people, all right? A lot of black folks, all right, who are, uh, who are on the receiving end of the uh, ideology behind people who flew that flag, so and the practices of it. So then it becomes the flag. Then it becomes a political contest. We're going to decide what this flag means by rallying support for our particular meaning. Right? I'm going to unify people around me, rally support, and we're going to use, you know, our our meaning for this flag as our as our unifying force, as our unifying role, and and that is what you see happening. And fortunately, um, you know, a lot of progressive people, a lot of people who are against racial discrimination, a lot of racially liberal people. You don't have to be politically liberal to be racially liberal, right? A lot of racially liberal people have coalesced around the um, ver the version of the meaning of the flag that says it is. It embraces um, discrimination and hate. Um, and those who make the other argument are now on the run, and especially after NASCAR, you know, because that was like one of the last strongholds of 
you know, you see the Confederate flag proudly flapping, you know, in public life and public sporting events, right? And even NASCAR has changed that. So it, for me, it's just been a fascinating study in the politics of words and symbols. Well, and and I just want to leave this point because I, I feel like America has sanitized slavery and that yep. we don't view slavery the same way that we view the Holocaust. And I think yep. that's a big mistake because if you actually read the history and how people were treated, there isn't a lot of difference. You know, Toni Morrison famously said, uh, David, to understand slavery, you have to take Nazism and spread it over 350 years. Exactly. So, on that happy note, um, and, and, well, here's, and, a, here, here, here's the quick happy part I'm going to throw in that that's not so happy, but I think that when we talk about solidarity, I've been over to Poland, I've, I've visited Auschwitz and, and, and Tablinka. There is a, you know, there is a lot of solidarity and historically has been through, since you mentioned those experiences, the Holocaust and the Jewish experience and some of the things that have gone on with black Americans. And I hope that we continue like W.B. Du Bois did. Um, we continue to build on that, on that strength for those two communities coming together. Well, I could talk to you about this stuff all day, but unfortunately this show has to end. So I want to thank you for taking the time and strongly recommend uh, people uh, read your book. And it's not a simple read, so you have to really absorb it to understand the nuances in it. Um, tell people the name of the book. Yes, it is in asterisk GGA theory, or as I say in the inside clap, black folks can say nigga theory um, out loud. And of course you can, I can't object to you ordering the book by that title if I put it on the title, but I, you know, I hope that everyone understands it is a word that wounds and we minimize our unnecessary use of it. It's nigga theory, race, language, unequal justice in the law, David. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Jody Amore. He's a law professor at USC, and it really is an incredible book, and I learned a lot from it, um, so I strongly recommend uh, that you read it as well. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.